and yeah, we'll keep we'll keep it nice and nice and short for Magnus has got a has got a dash to real stuff. I got job. <laughs> Do you have a job on a Sunday? Yeah, that's so ugly, uh, man. Yeah, that sucks. I I'm I'm a working class schlub. That's that's what my life looks like. Thankfully, I use that opportunity to force teenagers to listen to Germany's finest progressive rock every day at work. <laughs> oh, good. I'm, I'm sure I'm they like, really you're not allowed that. to turn it off. I'm your boss. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure your customers appreciate that. There's, there's probably like, um, if you check up like the uh, Yelp reviews of your place, they'll be like, yeah, decent <laughs> sandwiches, but what the hell was going on in the stereo? Look, dude's wailing about King Arthur. <laughs> They needed to hear uh, close. Actually, I recently played both discs of Eloy's double disc concept record about Joan of Arc. <laughs> <laughs> They're all double disc concept records. That's, that's not even special anymore. You can go to, <laughs> to triple disc, like uh, Joanna Newsom. Um, yeah, play some Joanna Newsom and just clear the place out. Yeah, uh, but that. But then, if someone said that they didn't like it, I'd have to fist fight them. <laughs> Like, you see what now about the queen? <laughs> I keep checking out uh, your your guys' uh, back catalog on um, on your podcast, and it's just sort of amazing from episode to episode. It's like, well, we're going to do a deep exploration of Ubik now, and uh, it's like now we're going to now we're going to jump into Venom Prison. Like it's the wildest <laughs> shit I've ever seen, and I love it. <laughs> wow, okay, can, can we get? I'm going to keep that recording for the. Uh... <laughs> Just in case, for all the times that I feel bad about myself, which is all We're, of them. We should sample that and splice it into numerous episodes from now on. <laughs> Especially if we think the episode is of otherwise a low quality. <laughs> just... <laughs> just like one in two. Yeah. It'll just, like, you know, it'll just be like a little, uh, like, a, like a blurb, an audio blurb for us. We need That's, that. Hey. I, I would do a commercial for you guys, but then oh. we'd have to figure out where it would go, you know? Yeah, we, <laughs> I, yeah I, I don't know how we do commercials since we, we, we barely do the actual content. Um, <laughs> like professionalize it to the point where we actually have, like, commercial breaks. <laughs> it would be impossible. Yeah. Well, one, of, one, of my, one of my roommates has been listening recently was, uh, um, which it's always weird when someone, like, in your personal life, um, or one of my former roommates, rather, like a guy I met in college, um, and he was telling me I thought it was really funny how we had that episode about uh, with with the woman who was researching uh, right wing hate groups, and it opened with an extended story of me talking about my new PS4 theme <laughs> regarding remembering 9/11. <laughs> it's all connected. If people can't see how connected that is, it's it's like um, it's like Lao Shu said. You know, if if I point to one wall and you do not come back with the other three, then you're a dumb fuck. Uh, yeah, I, uh, I, I think it gains something in translation. That's... Yeah, it does. <laughs> it gains swearing. So welcome to Death Sentence, everyone. Um, 
we are here with Pete uh, from uh, the excellent, excellent Podside Picnic uh, podcast. Um, it took me way too long to get the joke in Podside Picnic. I got it immediately, and I'm feeling pleasure from it. How in the world yeah. did it? It's such a well-known book. I know. I, I, lo- to call it I love it. It's not quite like, a novel. It's too short, but yeah, it's novella length, I think. But I love the book. Stalker is one of my favorite films. It took me like a month of listening to Podside Picnic before I picked up on. Oh wait, that's Roadside Picnic. By we're all geniuses Stugatsky here, brothers. babies. Yeah, just my brain works so well. It doesn't have any ADHD. <laughs> just plugging it up like molasses in an engine. Um, well, I'll, when we when we chose that title, we had no real expectation that anyone would get it at all. There was a serious, there was a lot of imposter syndrome going on. So it's, it's I, I'm glad to hear it landed on any it, level. Yeah, it, it hit eventually. Um, yeah, <laughs> I, I, I always get there sooner or later. Um, also, Alucard being Dracula backwards in Castlevania, like at least a decade before I got that. That one uh, actually legit fucked me up. Also, then later when I read dracula for real and i was like wait that's in dracula oh that's terrible <laughs> <laughs> so uh, like, oh yeah. this book sucks i love it <laughs> so t- tell I, me oh, oh, oh sorry go on well i was gonna say oh. to, to kind of tell tell the folks at home about the kind of formats and what 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 uh, pod side picnic is about Sure. So uh, I I do Podside Picnic with uh, Connor Southard, and Connor is uh, a writer. And one of the things he's been exploring is uh, genre fiction, specifically uh, gothic and science fiction. Because hmm. he's like, like a literary fiction kind of guy, yeah. Exactly. Exactly. And and I mean, he writes like sports articles too. He he put something out pretty recently about uh, the movie Parasite. And oh how God, it relates to oh me too. It's That's, so good, it's haunting. But uh, mm. he did an analysis of it related to the the concept of revolutionary gothic that's out there. If you're looking for something by Connor, but uh, the basic idea is I bring science fiction to the table. We we read it together and then we talk about like how it relates to literature, how it relates to science fiction, what's being done there, how it fits in with the canon and all of that stuff. So it's been a, it's been a lot of fun for me because I have had 40 years of reading every science fo- fiction book that got within a mile of me. And I never had any expectation that I was going to do something useful with it. So like being able to share it with people is a trip. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you've had some amazing books on there you know you've had all you kind of played the hits uh, like neuromancer parable of the sower stuff like that but you've had mm-hmm. some like you've had some stuff i don't know about um which isn't saying much because my brain is a sieve but, um, <laughs> i'm, but, I'm uh, looking at the episode with a zelazny deep cut just i'm yeah. making chef fingers right now you can't see it but i'm just like ooh. Because yeah. like I, I I love Zelazny. Anyone who likes sci-fi likes Zelazny. But it's it's frustrating how hung up people get on the Amber books, which are great to be fair. But it's like he he has this whole well of like masterworks. Oh yeah, mm. absolutely. I hey I I I did, do you guys swear on your cast? I have no idea. Oh, oh God, Constantly. fuck yeah. Yeah. Okay. Just so always. we're talking about you... fascists. We have to swear, otherwise we'd <laughs> blow up. <laughs> can I tell you about how Roger Zelazny got fucked over? So he he Definitely. wrote this. 
He wrote this book called Lord of Light, which is basically that's based my favorite on, one. Oh, it's so good. But it, it's based on Hindu mythology. And the, and the basic idea is another world is colonized and sort of the head tech people of the colony ship set themselves up as the Hindu gods using technology. Like it's, it's completely sick. But like the literature people love this and they're like, wow, this Selazny guy is an example of a, a transition point between regular literature and science fiction. And, you know, they basically started blowing him over it and putting him at all the big parties and stuff. And so he wrote a book shortly afterward called Creatures of Light and Darkness, which is about uh, Egyptian mythos, basically. And they took one look at it. It's like, you know, everything we thought about you was wrong. Fuck off. And like that was the end of his literary pretensions. I'm still mad about it because he's such a good writer. That is that is how literary people are and oh. must be. And yeah, they will turn on you in a second. Their books are good and their brains are very bad. Just, mm, just so terrible. <laughs> their hearts are bad. But um yeah, so we're we've come together as as a as a triune unit to talk about much like God. <laughs> okay <laughs> the classic triune union but well what about the um celtic triple goddess didn't oh, think of that, that one that's another one yeah damn so right. i was going now. with ultron but that's fine the ultron is five. way more than three yeah <laughs> <laughs> okay well you form the legs obviously okay <laughs> burn um okay well, I'm, I'm gonna form the head by saying we are talking about the invisibles one of my I don't know if I'm still going to call it one of my favorite comics of all time, because, well, let, I think we should start by talking about how we all encountered this first, because it kind of hits different at different times in your life. So I first encountered it when I was like 14. I lived in the back end of nowhere in Dorset. There was no bookstores for 20 miles. There was definitely no comic stores for about 100 miles. Uh, there was like a spinner rack of uh, graphic novels and tray paperbacks in a Waterstones in Yeovil, uh, which is a very depressing, horrible little post-industrial town. And it had the Invisibles. It had this little catalog that I got of all the different um, trade paperbacks that Titan Books were putting out. Uh, and it introduced me to, to Preacher, Transmetropolitan, Sandman, uh, and the Invisibles, this one little tiny little catalog. I, I just was like reading the catalog, like ticking stuff that I'd read for years. And um, yeah, and the Invisibles was the one that kind of, I mean, I, I loved all those books, but the Invisibles was the one that really got me. Then I ended up on a like fan forum for Grant Morrison fans for years. And like, they, like that fan forum, like encouraged me to do the university course I ended up doing. They were like, "Hey, have you checked out University of East Anglia?" And I was like, "No, what's it about?" And then I ended up going there for like five years. So it's it's, it's like it was like the invisible thing was like a huge, huge thing for me throughout my my teens and early twenties. And uh, yeah, it was yeah, it was it was huge. My story is um, similar, not exactly the same, um, but. Uh, on account of I'm I'm uh, American, not so I could not go to the University of East Anglia. Not available. Mm. But um, read comics a lot as a kid. Uh, standard kind of thing. I'm I was born in '88, so 
I was um, a young child during the tail end of one Marvel boom and the beginning of Image Comics and also the like Batman Nightfall and the death of Superman and all that stuff, which um, went like for a while, those were considered like really exciting comics and they were considered really embarrassing. And now they're considered um, at least apocal, if not um, if not great by every metric they are, they define an era in such a way. So it's like literally just walking into a comic shop being like, Oh, another lenticular Spider-Man. Give that to me. Mm-hmm. Um, not really caring about reading order, not really caring about anything else. Just sort of living in that world, having fun with it, get older, get more into literature, like, like, uh, like brain melting literature, like the kind where like, no, no one is actually, no one's actually supposed to read Finnegan's Wake, let alone at 15, Mm -hmm. but I was a pretentious teenager. So I did this. Mm -hmm. It's a great book, but also reading it at 15 is pretentious. That's just, that's just fact. Um, go on for a bit and wind up having this weird, um, I don't want to call it a, uh, a magical experience, but it basically was, uh, like a weird fever dream thing and i had this uh uh since became aware that this is uh due to mental illness stuff that i take meds for but basically saw this weird premonition uh in like a like a flu-like fever state um and i went out to a bookshop because it like i was a nerd child i would live in a bookshop or a library if i was given the opportunity and i walked over to the comic section and i just nabbed kingdom come i don't know why i was just looking through them and i was like that's the one i'm reading that one and it just sort of like cracked this vault of like wild childlike love. That was also when I was starting to get serious about writing for the first time. Um, like, you know, writing on and off since I was like five or six. Uh, like I'd always had the bug, but that was when it like roared into life. And I was like, I'm going to be a writer. Um, so I tap into that and it's just this like wild like this wildfire of like, l- like creative visions. Like I didn't really care. They didn't need to be perfect. They just needed to be interesting to have new, strange, intriguing ideas. And that led me down a rabbit hole. I eventually get Fever Vendetta. I get Watchmen, you know, I'll, like going down that I go to mm-hmm. a college where I am literally, the campus is literally across the street from a strip mall that has a huge comic shop, like a huge one. And so I start picking up all of why the last man, all of preacher, all of Sandman, you know, it's the same kind of thing that that's where it becomes as much the same as what, um, Gareth was saying. And then invisibles was part of that, but it hit around the same time that I was, I'd already read a bunch of Crowley. I had read prior to it. I'd read a bunch of Marquis de Sade. So when he gets to that stuff, I'm like, Oh, I actually, know what he's talking about here i'd um i'd read a bunch of because my i was born fairly late into my parents life so my dad was born in 1950 so and my uncle's a gen xer so i had you know like been been down so long it's it looks like up to me and like electric kool-aid acid test and i was i was aware of that stuff because i was stuff that my parents grew up with so yeah it was just something about invisibles touched the touched a nerve and like it forms a perfect foil for me with Promethea, which is probably my favorite comic of all time. I don't know Mm. if it's the best, but it's, this feels exactly the same, but like the, the dark opposition to it, 
Mm, yeah. Let's not let that go. I think that's an important <laughs> thing to talk about when you talk about Grant, Grant Morrison is that whole spirit journey thing and how it mirrors what, what, uh, oh my God, uh, Alan Moore used to did as well. Like they, yeah. it, very similar decisions, but very different results. And I think it's extra cool. And I just cut you off and it's your goddamn show. Please keep going. No, that's uh, one. One, this is why we bring people in that kind of, oh, that, oh, that energy. But uh, that was also basically the end of it. It's like, that's, I just, um, it, that's when it entered my life was in this like huge pool of like reading Preacher for the first time and reading uh, Alan Moore's run on Swamp thing and just, um, so it got to, I forgive it for a lot of sins inside of it because, uh, because of the fact that I got, I got very lucky that it was contextualized really well and that I was reading it next to a lot of its peers. I was reading it next to like Peter Milligan's run on Shade the Changing Man. And I, I got obsessive about collecting as much of early Vertigo as I possibly could and as much of the early British invasion. And so it, um, a lot of elements of it I'm able to I'm able to dim the fader more so to speak on certain bits where I think it's a little bit weaker because I it have in my head like how it fits with all this other stuff. Mm. So I'm like, okay, yeah, well same. I can just not go to you for that. Mm. Also, this is slightly slightly embarrassing, but it also speaks to the power of literature. It was we're gonna get to this um in a later volume, obviously, but there is a there's a trans character in Invisibles and not handled necessarily the greatest i don't think it's handled terribly but it's not uh, obviously we've gotten better of its time yeah um but that was i had a trans friend in high school and if i'm honest being i, I treated them kind of shitty not deliberately but it was like the the like the the liberal shittiness if that makes sense mm. or it's like i'm trying oh, to be accepting i'm trying to be accepting but in a really like obviously it's a shit way um, and it was reading this and getting that, um, we'll get more into it in the volume where it comes up, but it was actually encountering that where I was like, oh, I'm being a complete dick and not thinking about what it's like inside of their life. Oh, and then that at least helped open the door for me to move further down that stuff. Yeah. So Pete. Sure. Uh, well, about 12 years ago, um, I was, uh, towards the end of a marriage. And, um, I, I don't know how to say it. Like it, it's, it's not that I was, uh, doing bad things in it, but I was not doing things that I should be. So like I was, I was very reserved and there are all sorts of little details that you're supposed to do in your life when you're trying to keep a relationship going, like pay your bills on time and remember birthdays and all of this stuff. And I was like in this depressive cycle where I didn't do any of that shit. Like I, it, mm. it must've been like been living with a, a dirty, yes. Can you hear me? Oh yeah. Yeah. Sorry. Okay. I, just, I just said I've been there. Okay. Fair enough. I, th I thought you said, are you there? And I'm like, wow, oh, no. I don't want to <laughs> re go through that. <laughs> <laughs> don't worry. No. <laughs> hey, can you repeat what? all that two or three times? <laughs> <laughs> I'm just sitting here crying. Uh, but, uh, <laughs> one day I came home and uh, the the front door was wide open and the house had been ransacked and there was there was an Amazon box by the door 
And uh, my then partner came home, said, hey, that's it. And she walked. And that package was the first uh, soft copy of The Invisibles. And so, like, in that moment, I sat down and I opened it and started reading it. And it was it was sort of like my death journey. That sounds really dumb, but, like, I needed to be emptied out. And that's the sort of journey The Invisibles was doing for me. So it was it was a really like at the time it connected with me in that way. And it it was valuable to me. Damn. Okay. well, that's certainly more intense than my story of just like I found it in a bookstore. But uh, (laughs) so many of our stories, I think we all like orbit bookstores as much as we can. (laughs) That makes perfect sense. So, yeah. So let's just kind of give a summary of the of this like crazy postmodern psychedelic meta comic. Um, <laughs> well so, put. yeah, it's um, okay. It's so that, yeah, it's what that. Just just said. A, We're done. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Nailed it. No, it. It does have Hold a conventional one. plot. It does have like good guys and bad guys and a, a chosen hero, but they subvert it and stuff. It has. Okay. So uh, Dane McGowan is a, a teenager in uh, Liverpool. He's, not he, he's smart but he's just a kind of thug he's 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 basically what i would have been if i hadn't been in um bookstores all day and um he gets recruited by a, a secret organization called the invisibles um and uh they are fighting the outer church who are these interdimensional snm insects um and uh, basically, the Invisibles are good guys. They're like cool and punk and hippies, and they're into cool stuff and they do cool drugs and they're cool. Uh, and the Alter Church are like the man, and they're all like old folks. And um, it is very of its time. It was uh, came, first came out in 1994, like early 94. Um, and it it is. And it kind of ended, I think, just after uh, 2000. It was supposed to end in um, the uh, the turn of the millennium, but it kind of ran over a little bit. And um, yeah, it's you'd think it's a bunch of sexy spy sh- shenanigans, but then it it doesn't derail because it was already going that way in the first place. But it it gets way more complex. Um, the characters go in crazy directions. It gets really, um, it yeah, it deconstructs. I know everyone hates that word. It deconstructs the book it is, and even it's not deconstructing a genre as such, although it does use stuff from genres. But it's deconstructing itself while it's being written. Uh, so, yeah, it's um, it's a trip, and um, yeah, it it is one of those cult comics like. Well, even more than V for Vendetta, a lot of things that does inspire people to keep coming back to it for decades of their lives and like start internet forums about it. And um, and there's all the occult stuff in it as well, which um, we'll probably talk about at a later date because it's a bit more comes in later. Later, but it's um, it introduced a lot of people to doing some very weird stuff um, in a good way. It. it- it's also you can see this even within the first volume. So it's it's going to be difficult for this uh, episode specifically because we plan on doing volume by volume to try to keep um, 
to try to keep this focused on the first volume, primarily because it's it's not so much because we are by nature rangy, although that obviously contributes to it. It's more that Invisibles even feels like a thing that gestures forward and back to itself. Obviously, that's that's true of all novels, right? But even even more so in this, and that certain threads don't really seem to... They're so shard-like that they don't feel like they're beginning to assemble into something until even the very end. And yeah. part of what Gareth is th discussing with the deconstruction is the thing they appear to be assembling into changes over time. And mm. they mute... And So there's a major threat in this um, of the main character who winds up eventually going by the name of Jack Frost finds out that he is a um, reincarnation of uh, the Buddha, Grant Morrison, and John Lennon. Not not <laughs> verbalized explicitly in those terms, except the Buddha part. That, that one is explicit. Mm. But it's visually demonstrated through that. And obviously with comics, the visual language is almost a superior element to the, to the uh, literary language. Um, and it threads it under the guise of that's why the Invisibles seek him out, because he's this rebellious figure that embodies all the great rebels, both from the rebellion of the Buddha against uh, the Hindu uh, the Hindu pantheon and the Hindu faith, which is actually also represented in Lords of Light, because the main character is loosely based on Buddha as a reformist of a Hindu system, where the reforms, similar to Christ's reforms of Judaism, go either so great or so terribly, depending on your view of it, that it becomes a different religion instead of a reform. Hmm. Um, and that that notion of the parallel of the Buddha and the Christ is also baked into specifically the person who is nominally the main character, at least of volume one. Um, it's the walking up the mountainside theory. It's like all of us are on our own spiritual journeys on one way or another, but we're all going up to the same mountain to the same goal. We're just calling it different things. And I'm I'm profoundly skeptical of that, but I think I think uh, uh, Grant Morrison argues it very well in here, insofar as he argues anything. I think that he he riffs on a component. <clears throat> a component of it, a way to construct it that isn't necessarily saying that it's inherent, but saying that um, uh, it, it's like a riff on the Campbellian, the, the now mostly debunked Campbellian notion of comparative mythology, where it's more going, that's a good kernel of thought as a speculative thought that we can then point towards things that maybe give us, uh, if not true, then useful things and privileging useful over necessarily true. Um, I have we a, see, oh, you go on. I was just going to say, when I think about the structure of this, this uh, set of comics, I think about Grant Morrison getting drunk. Like yes. I think, I think he has like 15 or 20 hot button issues like any of us. And so he'll start talking and it's like, oh, okay, he's going off on Robert Anton Wilson now. Or it's like, oh, no, this is his Michael Moorcock section. And mm -hmm. like each section of the comic seems to delve into one of his interests in such a way that makes The Invisibles seem to be a story about his journey. And I feel like what he was writing at the very beginning, like it, it's very obvious that the comic shifts over time and you guys are going to have to deal with that in future episodes. And good luck to <laughs> oh you. boy, are we? Oh yeah. yeah. <laughs> but I, I don't think 
I I think it's different all the way through because he's a different guy by the time he gets to the end. Mm, yeah, I not only strongly agree that becomes quite literally textual, but again, not in this volume yet. But we can even begin to see uh, bits of it. Images of Grant Morrison permeate this volume mm, when yeah, uh, when they're revealing the Buddha nature of the main character. Uh, one of the depictions of the Buddha is not just John Lennon, but is Grant Morrison. King Mob is loosely based on the image of Grant Morrison. There's even a moment where the main character runs into the invisible church and it's a bunch of guys dressed like jockeys. And there's one guy with a top hat and the main guy with the top hat not only looks exactly like King mob, which becomes relevant later. Hold on to that thought for like (laughs) four episodes. Um, But also looks exactly like Grant Morrison. Um, Yeah. It was a thing like um, Neil Gaiman put, dressing as the Sandman and using that to pick up girls, basically. Um, Grant Morrison kind of, um, he referred to it as, as, he referred to King Mob explicitly as a fiction suit, as like basically a self-insert, but way more occult, Um, as like a character he could put on to enter enter the book and like become that in real life, become cooler and sexier and uh, like like an alternative 90s S&M James Bond. That that became Grant Morrison went into the book. King Mob came out of the book. It was um, yeah, it was a it was a very conscious and very um, occult process for him writing the book. Even to the point, um, and this is going to come up in a later episode, where there's a point where King Mob gets tortured and there's like a, a cut on his face, and apparently Grant Morrison had a bacterial infection on his face that was exactly like the cut he got. So he got like voodoo dolled himself through the character he was so intensely wound up with that character um a a loose description of oh you go on oh we should we should cut for some music now actually okay we should um yeah so we're gonna go uh play a so this band uh obsequie am i saying that right obsequii obsequii okay that's cool um uh, okay, Obsequii. They um, so they had the misfortune of coming out of releasing their album in the exact same week as Blood Incantation. Yeah, um, terrible, de- terrible decision making. Yeah, not a good idea for them on or Twenty Bucks Spin their label, but uh, it is a damn good album. I think. Oh, which, which which brings to mind Hidden History of the Human Race. Oh yeah, I know. We'll we'll we'll. We're gonna be getting to that. That will be. I just, I just have to. Say, I just have to say it out loud verbally. Yeah. Um, it pairs well with uh, the Invisibles that album. But um, so the Palms of Sorrowed Kings is Obsequies' album. It's um, it's been described as castle metal. And I kind of like that. It's like half heavy metal, half black metal. It's um. There's also a little bit of not not even quite dungeon synth because they actually have a harp player like that's not Mm. a synthesized harp. It's a real harp, Um, but it's the same sensibilities of this very light and airy uh, medieval music. Mm, Yeah, it's it's very. um, Yeah, it's 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 very medieval. It sounds like being in a castle and it's just damn good. It's it's not cheesy like power metal. It's um, it's not even folky at all, really, but it is. Yeah, it is a very good album. It's a shame it came out when it did, because I think it would have gotten a lot more attention if it had just been delayed a week or 
um, brought forward a week. So but- funny, funny story about it. Funny, very brief story. Um, I uh, so I had, obviously my blood incantation review went up. I saw that and I was like, that I'm doing that. That's mine. If you assign that to anyone else, I will kill them until one by one, it's mine. Um, but you know, working out other stuff, I was like, oh, I should cover that obsequi record. And the the editor was like, yeah, that's it's a good idea. Everyone likes, yeah. Um, once more, it, I I it didn't click with me. Um, I'm the only one in the world who has ever had this happen. Listen to both obsequi records, and I'm like, not not digging it. But I made Gareth play Dream Theater once, so <laughs> I you know, and this is definitely better than that. So oh yeah. Yeah, this is, this is way better than Dream Theater. <laughs> so, um, yeah, I'm going to play a song called Lone Isle. It's the eighth song of the album. Uh, they're all good in their ways, but, um, yeah, I, I kind of dug Lone Isle. So, um, yep, this is a sequel with uh, Lone Isle.
so uh, we're, we're back from Obsequii and a quick little jaunt talking about vampires. Uh, uh, we're talking about The Invisibles, Volume 1. Uh, I, I'm talking about, like, this is a radio show, even though they're, like, no one would listen to this like a radio show unless they have, like, a severe, like, uh, like a brain-eating bacteria. But anyway, okay, um, look, we all, we all have diseases. <laughs> uh, well, it's more that, like, Ah, that's a whole thing. I'm bad at formatting. That's my classic thing. I love riffing, though. And so we're going to get back to riffing. So um, I want to cover first the loose plot of the first volume. Uh, normally, I'm not a plot-first literary analyst. I think that in most situations, that ignores that literature happens at the level of the line, at the level of the scene, at the level of the gesture, things like that. And the plot is a way to string those along. And while technically that's almost even more true of the Invisibles, charting the curly cues of it, I think, illustrates a very important formal point that makes much more sense the further in you go. But for right here, it opens with our messianic character being a little teenage rebel, a little scamp, um, gets picked up by King Mob. They're like, hey, you're the messiah. And he's like fuck you, man. And he's like, your new name is Jack Frost. And he's like, that's not my name. My name's Gowan. He's like, your name's Jack, fucker. Um, and he's like, I guess I'm Jack. Uh, makes him a spy. They fight the outer church a little bit. It's it's normal kind of um, gritty, half-realistic uh, comic at that point. They're kind yeah. of like aimed at mature readers, but not... Then, then the main character has what can be described as either... Uh, a drug trip, a transcendental experience, or uh, it's deliberately both in this, uh, in in all senses of that, like the sense that it being a drug trip demeans it and subtracts some value and makes it this illusory thing, but also uh, removes this veil of perception that allows the main character to see something beyond himself. He wants to cling to that paradox. Um, and that I'm just going to... I just want to say the name Philip K. Dick here, and now I'm showing oh, yeah. up. <laughs> oh yeah, um, that that notion of clinging to the paradox of, and, and it also goes back to even like Delphic oracles and uh, uh, shamanistic practice. Now we can argue whether the the deliberate nod to shamanism is appropriative of indigenous uh, folk practice. So not not trying to remove that, but again, as Gareth was saying, very much of the time when considerations of whether that may be a fairly gross thing for a white author to do. Not really there, but the parallel is there. So he has this and it drives him to go to a character who is uh, more or less can be described as if Alan Moore was homeless. Um, mm -hmm. Oh yeah. Who basically is a spirit guide um, and acts as loose guide of, of sorts through these uh, epiphanic thoughts and epiphanic experiences, or at least very early ones. Um, anyone who's done hard drugs, had a psychotic episode, or alternatively is intensely spiritual, um, will recognize the sense of the first cracking of that door of inner mystery. Um, you can get to it in all kinds of ways, and we can argue whether some ways are better or worse, and we can even argue as a Marxist materialist whether any of these are useful whatsoever, but the character is at least experiencing it, has that cracking of the door and this weird witness of 
the strange shimmering beyond that he can't make heads or tails of. And then the guy's like, okay, I have to leave. Top Hat guys are going to fight you now. Um, <laughs> has a big, crazy adventure. His eyes get plucked out, and he sees pillars of flesh that are like termite mounds. Um, that's one of the examples that Gareth was talking about of an imagistic like um, mushroom form that doesn't get elaborated on for like several volumes. Um, oh, yeah. Yeah, there's plenty and, here that doesn't get elaborated on. There is a a, a scene uh, where um, Jack Frost and Tom O'Bedlam, the um, mentor character, are, in, are just sitting in a graveyard, and two people dressed in kind of old-timey clothes walk past, talking about this stuff that is kind of nonsense at, at the time. They're talking about a Harlequin, and who's that, and what was going on. And that's a scene taking place about, it's got to be about, like, 20 issues like a couple of years of um, writing. It's from... in the whole second volume of this. Yeah. So uh, using volume in the publication sense, not in the collection sense, um, the Invisibles went through three volumes of issues one to X. And then, so it restarted at issue one three times. The third time it actually <laughs> restarted at issue 13 and worked backwards to one. But yeah, it's, it was so far forward that it was not even in the the publication volume of this. Technically, the book got canceled one time before he got to that plot point. Mm. Um, oh yeah, yeah. He... And that it's worth noting the character name uh, Tom O'Bedlam uh, is one a uh, it's a a name that's going to be more familiar to either British people in general or people who studied British literature. Um, but it's the uh, it's the name of a anonymous. About this. <laughs> it's the name of an anom- anonymous poem written in like a mad lyric style of a deliberate riff on like a Delphic oracle or or oracular text in general. But instead of it being a wise man who is brought to wisdom or a wise woman brought to wisdom through the epiphanies of the gods, it's one of like Dionysian drunkenness and revelry brings this like er poetic insight deliberately mixed with gibberish. And that's sort of the um, Harold Bloom. It was a big defender of the Tom O'Bedlam uh, image and the Tom O'Bedlam figure underscores a lot of Grant Morrison's mental approach to magic in general, that that self-acknowledgement that I even mentioned before that, insights coming from a drug trip do automatically demean the value of that insight. And the older you get, the more that becomes apparent, even if as a 20 something you take acid or take mushrooms or, and see the universe or something, but it's more by random recombinatory chance of having enough of these really intense, really like drunken and poetic experiences. You can begin to assemble the little motes that, means something or at least had like a profound impact on you um again we can be critical of this idea in a certain sense but that's at least the idea that morrison is playing with and that the deliberate not just invocation of tom o'bedlam the the drunken lyric poem but naming a character that and making him the spirit guide that he serves a figure almost like pan um bringing someone into enlightenment not through asceticism, but through like intense revelry. 
Yeah. So Pete, did, this person who was one was the, the kind of least favorite part of the um of the part. It was a bit too obvious, but um to me that it was it was a training sequence and it was the the part in the Campbellian hero's journey where the hero meets the wizard who tells him about the nature of the universe. But, yes. but um Pete, did you did you how did you feel about this like this particular section? His like uh, down and out in London uh section well i i thought a couple of things and the and the first is probably something you two will have to grapple with later and that is uh a strong suspicion that this section was the 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 seed for alan moore hating him so much (laughs) could be i i don't disagree (laughs) well the idea of looking in somebody else's comic and seeing you prevent presented as sort of a um, a faded, half insane mentor figure that's ultimately not significant to the main plot line. I'd be really mad. <laughs> I mean, especially given like the uh, well. Can, can I talk about magic for a second? Uh, Dude, I guess yeah. we, I think we have to. Not only in generally, not only in general, are both of us interested in that for uh the standard conflicting reasons of when you're a marxist materialist but also you've dabbled with the occult um which is a weird thing that we we both carry but also with this in specific like we can't talk about the invisibles without talking about magic right yeah absolutely well okay so there's this there's this evolutionary thing about uh, uh like great cats like lions and stuff in trees in Africa, you can't see them. You can sort of see half motion out of the corner of your eye. And if you look at that, you see that half motion and you say, well, it's probably nothing. You will eventually get eaten. Hmm. Like, that's how it works. And so, yeah. like, we have been selected to see things that aren't necessarily there because sometimes they are. And that's a big part to me of what magic is. And that's a big part to me of what I feel like Grant Morrison is exploring here. Um, one of the things about it is uh, it's almost like you're developing your own language. I, I mean, yeah, I, I yeah. don't know how to say it. You're, it's, it's, like, it's like without any real guidance except for like the other crazy people who have tried it, you're trying to build your own language of how the world works. And I feel like he was trying to describe that journey here. And in some ways it connected with me. And in some ways it felt like the Karate Kid movies. Mm, yeah, it has. I, it has yeah. Lot, <laughs> you know, it like any training sequence, it, it feels like the bit where Morpheus explains the nature of the Matrix. Uh, incidentally, uh, Grant Morrison sued the Wachowski at, at that time brothers and got a lot of money because they, he, Alleged they ripped off a lot of the invisibles for the for the for the matrix, but yeah, it feels he never like never thought of that. <laughs> yeah, I'd, he, oh, yeah, I he, he I'll, also that, a so. quick thing. I, I don't. And going forward, we should just call them the Wachowski sisters. Okay, sorry. That's uh, uh, yes. it. Look, right. Right. we catch them, we correct them, we move on. Um, okay. Good. <laughs> but yeah, uh, I I agree with that that read of it. It this is again one of those things where we see I think a more successful training sequence in Shade the Changing Man. Um, and where he just dives headlong into the psychedelia. It doesn't take too long to explain it and just immerses you in it. And 
I bring that up one because Peter Milligan actually did the introduction to volume one. Um, and that's mm -hmm. a very deliberate choice. Um, very close peers. And to my knowledge, I think they're still pretty close friends. Um, and obviously making similar work. The other reason why I bring that up is because uh, we can contextualize out some of the weaknesses of that uh, Tom of Bedlam sequence, which I definitely agree are there. Um, this is, I think, also part of where the frustration sometimes between uh, Morrison and Moore can arise because we can argue about whether it possesses the same like effervescence, effervescent psychedelic wildness, but Alan Moore, I think, nails those kinds of profound spiritualist initiatory sequences in his work uh, yeah. a lot I mean, more successfully, a lot more frequently. Was, was that. And um, <laughs> he does it really well. Yeah, I mean, yeah. you even have a sequence in V for Vendetta that he sneaks in where oh, yeah. um, the detective has that. the psychedelic trip mm. and internalizes the mind of a terrorist, yeah. um, which is the same kind of initiatory sequence. Yeah, um, even um, uh, EV being in the uh, fake prison is uh, an, is literally an initiatory si si sequence with like the big uh, part where she goes up on the roof and it's all raining and then she's like, yeah, that's yeah, that is a, a, a initiatory sequence in the, the, yeah. There, there's a there's a comparison I think to be made here to all right, let's get our literary caps on, boys, uh, to courtesan. Um, and uh, oddly, it's it's a an element of Cortezon's uh, literary work that shows up in Death Heaven. Like George Clark has specifically cited Cortezon, and um, the name Cortezon shows up in some of the lyrics for uh, "Ordinary Corrupt Human Love." But mm. the influence is there as early as uh, Sunbather. In fact, the cover design of Sunbather is based on this. And uh, a sequence from a Cortezon novel where a character closes their eyes and stares up into the sun and witnesses the dappling of color on the inside of their eyelids as this moment of, like, the self is purely dissolved into an ecstasy of meaningless color and substance and experience. And I think that component of it's a deliberate di dissolution into meaninglessness, Morrison isn't seeking meaning with Barbalith or with the psychedelic components, but it's with this faith that if you seek a dissolution into meaninglessness, you might sometimes come back with something of value that you didn't anticipate you were going to get. And sometimes going into it wanting to get that makes it retreat from you in a way that going into it more purely doesn't always. Which ties back to the comment that you were making about magic of it being you look at things that aren't there because sometimes they are. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, I, one of the things that I wanted to ask you guys that I was kind of curious about, and I, I think from context and what you're saying, I've got the answer, but I'm going to ask anyway. Um, it does. It's very clear that the, the, the drug use uh, for the spirit journey here, I don't even remember the nature of the drug. It was white flakes of some kind that brought them to that point. Um, it, it, it's clear that it's, it's a cheat. It, I mean, it's, it's, it's cheap and it doesn't fundamentally change the action. Do you think he thought of it at the time that way? Or do you think that's sort of where he got to by the end of the journey? Because I'm not really sure personally, I, I don't have I mean, a great understanding of, of him. Well, I mean, it does, it is revealed that the, the blue mold him and, uh, that Jack and Tom and Bedlam smoke is just mold. mold thank it's you. it's yeah. just nothing. 
uh, it's not a psychedelic it doesn't do anything it's it's like um basically jack is having these experiences because of how Thomas bedlam has personally opened up his mind in in a way like a buddhist teacher would to a to a novice so yeah he um basically grant morrison who is like notorious for being a, a big drug user um of psychedelics you know he doesn't like yeah. fuck with heroin or something but um and you know his um big ex- uh, uh kind of peak state experience that uh, in catman dude that um inspired this was was drug induced more or less um although you know like in in psychedelic use um not to give anything away about myself here but there are occasionally times when you 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 hit a point where you you you're like oh this is a bit more than just chemicals in my brain there's something else going on here especially when you're with friends and you all see the same thing at once or something 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 like that where you you realize there's you know you're you're actually being opened up to something slightly different than just like dopamine and serotonin swirling around um yeah i think he yeah he he doesn't basically tell the 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 readers go get fucked up on drugs and you'll see a barbellif um because you won't um i think he's a bit smart in that i but consider he, he doesn't want to I consider both his approach to magic and the invisibles as we'll dive more into what he means by this as it goes on. By the end of volume one, his meaning of this is not clear whatsoever. Uh, referring to the invisibles as a meta sigil. Um, it, it's again, by the end of volume one, the fact that he says that just feels like pretentious, like dweeb shit. Um, to be honest, to clear out the rest of like a, a, a plot summary before we dive into stuff is then everyone tra- does transcendental meditation and time travels because they meditate so hard uh, yeah. and meet yeah. a bunch of uh, spooky characters who don't do anything necessarily meaningful, even though it seems so by the end of this first volume. Pretty much everything they oh, do yeah. is erased or pointed in different directions, even by volume two. Yeah. But um, so, yeah, they, they go back, they time psychically time travel to revolutionary France. And um, they to uh, to um, acquire the Marquis de Sade, who is an invisible, because everyone cool in history is an invisible, by the way. Uh, all your faves, uh, and also there's a whole subplot with uh, Percy Shelley and Lord Byron, um, also invisibles because they're cool. Everyone is. And, there's a um, weird smudged faced demon who, again, the smudged faced demon has the face of Grant Morrison. Um, oh yeah. Yep, because everyone, yeah, he has to be there. But um, and he deliberately is visiting. Um, he's making them visit like mad poet types, like Lord Byron and Percy Shelley, and visiting the Marquis de Sade. Who there's been some ups and downs on whether the Marquis de Sade is uh, useful or not. So the briefest mm-hmm. version to engage with all of that, it's a whole body of discourse, is that at least in the 120 days of Sodom, the premise is there are these four figures who represent the church, um, businessmen, politicians, and the justice system. And then they brutally abuse everyone in this castle for 120 mm. days. Yeah. It's the most on the nose metaphor. And it's almost like an, an inarguable one as well, that these figure, these archons of authority and that, that term archon of authority is 
uh, literally important to the Invisibles, uh, only increasingly so as it goes <laughs> forward, hmm. um, but is also plucked deliberately from Gnosticism of referring to uh, the wicked embodiments of the Demiurge as archons. But it's and, it's uh, very on the nose, and he's playing with that same um, uh, poet's madness of like hmm. most of what they're going to say is bullshit, but every now and again, ooh, um, yeah. The and, uh, the reason why I bring that up is because magic in uh, both in my personal life, but also within it seems like within Morrison's system, and this applies to drug use as well, is perhaps better conceptualized. And you even have Jack Frost saying something similar where they're time traveling and then it cuts to him and he's watching them just sitting on the ground and they're not actually leaving the room. And it's left kind of, kind of contradictory that they like legit were just sitting there. Um, but also they were, their minds were back in time, but also they weren't, they were, he deliberately leaves that contradiction unresolved because it's, perhaps more akin to the way that if you hear the perfect song that maybe doesn't have lyrics or maybe has um, lyrics that are about something totally different, there'll be a stray line matched with the perfect chord and timbre. And all of a sudden you realize I need to leave my relationship. It's toxic <laughs> or mm -hmm. a similar kind of thing. And you go, I've been really shitty to that trans friend of mine i need to actually listen to what the fuck they say uh about this stuff and not be so ties that don't really make a great deal of sense but only come from investing in effectively what all literature uh is which is like codified socially acceptable nonsense and lies but that yet can still have this profound very real impact on you yeah alan moore impact is a lot is more um is a lot more cogent on on that. He yes. he really goes into that idea, and his his work is that idea basically most of it. And and so the notion that's where I think to answer your question, Pete, as well about about the drug use. I don't think necessarily he had the words for it exactly at the moment of writing this. Although definitely by the end when he completed, uh, we should probably do like an eighth episode on the pseudo companion of the filth. Um, but he he has a brief epiphany there at least that drug use itself is a kind of theater and that you're engaging in the absolute nonsense of being high, but every now and again, it can just make something click in your head. And, but in order for that click to happen, you have to invest in it. Like, even if you know, it's not real, you have to invest yourself in it as though it is real and don't allow that barrier to get put up between you and that experience, at least not in the moment. You can re-erect that barrier later, but even the very notion of, and this is, it ties outside of Morrison. This is the usage of psychedelics in magical praxis. Even the usage of like caffeine um, is using something to break down that barrier between you and experience because the experience is the thing that's important. And then allowing yourself to critically evaluate it after the fact as much as you want, you know, go through all your lenses, but and this is ironically my best uh, comparison here, I think, is to professional wrestling. If you sit watching professional re professional wrestling the entire time going, those aren't real wrestling moves. He's, they're, they're not actually getting hurt as much as they seem. This isn't, this isn't real. You're just not going to get it 
And no one who leaves the arena thinks that what they saw was literally real. No one thinks The Undertaker is an undead Wild West mortuary lich. But it's like if you don't give yourself up to it, at least in the moment of the wrestling match and the wrestling event, you're not, you have closed off the, even the ability to get anything useful out of this. There's a even layer if, here that, oh, go ahead, go ahead. Oh, no, that I was, that was it. I just like, I think you're hitting on something important here. It's like we, we immediately dove into the, the meta and the praxis of this. And we didn't talk about how it slaps, right? Like <laughs> that's so goddamn true. It's such a good story. And like, one of the things I like the most about it is like, I can identify with so many different characters. Like I can look at, at that shit kid, uh, Jack Frost, and I can say, well, he's kind of me. And I can do the same thing oh, yeah. with King Mob. And I can do the same thing with like Jack Frost, uh, his teacher. Like there's so many characters that are built like this. It, it, this is the wrong way to say it, but I'm sure you can help me find the right way. Like this is a way to be cool. This is a way to join into my meta sigil. Hmm. Yeah, yeah. They, he, they are all fiction suits. I mean, he ah. even says uh, they're like people you can kind of like put on and wear. You can think you go into a, a job interview and you could say like nice and smooth like King Mob always does, and then you just a little bit, um, you just got a little bit of his his juju in you for for what you need. Um, yeah, and yeah, I think uh, like Landon said with um, the character of Lord Fanny. The trans character, yeah, she's useful too. She takes on masks, put them on. She's and she's well, she's my favorite character in it by a long shot. Um, was she was my least a decade ago, and she's my most now. Yeah, There's I think this epiphanic moment with her that unfortunately isn't present in this volume, but that really, even on a reread, I um I feel really really fond of it because it's just deeply affirming of her. Uh, her womanhood and her personhood, like it doesn't, it doesn't choose one or the other, and it feels very calm. With like also almost feeling comfortable, um, not dismissing, but like her transness isn't the pivotal component of her character. Mm, she yeah. she is a person, and she is trans. And he has the brief moment where he affirms, like, yeah, um. I honestly can't wait till we get there, but this moment of like, yeah, she has access to things that through her culture, literally only a, a woman has access to. She is a woman. Um, it's just this. There's, there's a subtlety and richness to her that is really only um, rivaled in Jack Frost. I think. Yeah. And yeah, a uh, uh, boy has a lot of, um, Later, she gets a lot more levels to it. On this part, she's uh, she, she's kind of just like a the, the regular person who just happens to be in this weird group. So she's always you know, complaining about how crazy it all is. And um, but later we see why she does that. But um, I have some sympathy on that. You know, it, it's it's uh, it, 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 there's so much to this series that some people are going to be cardboard in the first section. Yeah, I mean, it, the first section basically reminded me of when you, say, start a new job. 
and you go into a group of people you've never met before. They all have their own They've all got their in-jokes and everything. And yeah, it, it feels like what Jack is going through. He's in this whole new team and he's got no idea about these people. He, he, you know, he's really homophobic towards Lord Fanny, which you know, luckily ends pretty soon. And they basically become best friends. Um, and yeah, he, he, he feels like moving into a new area and just finding the people and getting to know them. But yeah, it's, it doesn't, it lets you sit in that emotion for a while because it doesn't introduce most people. I mean, Boy gets the introduction last and she's like dozens of issues away before we really find out her, about her background. So like in end of volume two and uh, Ragged Robin has, you know, she's this weird girl with clown makeup and frizzy hair. We know nothing about her. We don't even know why she has clown makeup on. In fact, we never find it out, which is cool. <laughs> um, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's just, it's just there. But um, yeah, we, we end up liking these people a lot more than we do in this thing. And it, it is kind of like, you know, sitting down with a bunch of pretentious art school kids for, for a while there. And you can see why uh, Jack slash Dane is so annoyed with them. Because he's just a regular down-to-earth kid. And there's just all these weird fucking people. Half of them are foreign. One of them was wearing clown makeup for no reason. Yeah, he, he would never associate with anyone even remotely like these people. And now he he has to, and he has to like trust them with his uh, his life and their lives. So yeah, I can I can see structurally why it, why it has to be like that. But yeah, they are basically like a cardboard, like you said. They're a bunch of ticks and um, and stuff at the, at this point in the in the um, in the narrative. So <clears throat> yeah, Pete. Let's um, let's kind of finish off with just your like your final thoughts on this on this volume. Like, does okay. does this is this a successful nine issue run of a comic that's you know gonna be a huge sweeping epic hyper sigil? Um, you know, does it even does it work as entertainment and a comic and a hyper sigil? It's it's a really interesting question, and I think it's one that I'm just going to have to give my answer to because I, I I think if we recorded us separately, we would end up with three different answers to this. Um, I would say that of the comics that comprise the Invisibles, that this nine are the least fully formed. Uh, the most he's trying to figure out what's going on, the most... Well, have you, if you've ever read like the initial Sandman comics, you can tell that on some level, some editor is standing behind Neil Gaiman, screaming at him to include some superheroes and crap. <laughs> yep. And that's sort of how I felt about this, is that it is not quite itself yet. It's getting there, and the potential is huge. And honestly, all of the things I just said about it make it my favorite part. Like, <laughs> like, 
watching it sort of gel together as you read it and have him come to the conclusion, hell, this is really what I'm doing. This is how I'm going to take my vision from mountain climbing and turn it into something real. It makes it, it just makes it a fascinating read for me. Mm. Yeah. So, so it's flaws make it fascinating to you then. Yes, exactly. The fact that it isn't perfect makes it my favorite part. I, I agree. I think that um, not not with the fact that it's my favorite part. That one I reserve. I I think the ending actually nails it so perfectly. But there there's a point where they actually show the hypersphere of time that we'll get there. Um, this part though, I agree. It feels like he. So it's it's psychedelic fun. Red as pulp. It will either be the most obnoxiously uh, white cis male or white straight cis male psychedelic fantasy fun uh in an obnoxious sense or in a like fun goofball sense he hasn't really seized on what will make it powerful yet he's threading moats in moats that at this point aren't um aren't guaranteed to come to fruition in fact uh, I can mention this now, and I'll mention it again by uh, in the the third episode of of the series. A lot of that meandering led to it getting canceled the first time. Of the sense mm. of pe- people could see the potential, but he wasn't nailing it. And he even mentions, um, I have some sources about his life. I got I got really into uh, the academia of comics for a bit, so <laughs> thankfully I'm incredibly well prepared for that part. Um, he even acknowledged there was sort of a wilderness period after the first cancellation of like, no, I need to, I need to do it. Um, and he recommits to it in a way for volume two. And then eventually, especially for volume three, that isn't quite here yet, but I agree that this is where it's going to come down to a contextual thing for us. Having read the entire thing and coming back to this, it's incredibly intriguing because you can read it and ideas are so raw that you know that he doesn't know where he's going to take these things yet. Yeah. Um, he doesn't know that Marquis de Sade's going to become a very pivotal figure for chunks of the future. Um, he doesn't know what he's going to do with Tom O'Bedlam. He doesn't know when he's going to become disinterested with the Jack Frost messianic narrative. And then when he's going to go, no, wait, no, I put that in there on purpose. No, that I, that's actually useful. No, I, I need to bring that back. It's it's all just pulp here. And where a book like Preacher gestures to big things, but never really gets there, it just lives in the world of pulp. And if you treat it as just a book that lives in the world of crazy, tripped out, post-Philip K. Dick, um, gory, psychedelic uh, pulp, it's tight. This hasn't escaped that, but knowing that it does, I think, makes it exciting. But that's where my other stance on these nine is I can unfortunately also see why reading this could turn off, especially certain modern audiences, not even to be mean or dismissive about that, but modern sensibilities have thankfully gotten to a level of sophistication where I can see this being off putting. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But um, yeah, we're going to carry on going through each of the volumes of the invisibles. Um, until we end up uh, in the final one, which is crazy. Um, It's fucking bananas. Yeah. So um, 
yeah, Pete, uh, where can where can folks find you? Thank you. Well, uh, I uh, if if you go out and you Google Podside Picnic, uh, we are uh, you know we've got a podcast out there and a Patreon. Uh, a, a lot of that is out there that is free, and I'd hope you guys would check it out. Um, if you're into science fiction, I think we're a good uh, we're a good companion for that. So. Oh, thank you. I, I gotta say, I, I'm I'm deeply in love with your show. I I, I oh, like I liked it on Friday after spending Saturday and Sunday listening through episodes. Man, <laughs> I yeah, I'm your next subscriber. So th- thank you oh, so thanks. much for having me on. Hey, no Absolutely. Okay, to play us out, we've got a band that I'm pretty sure we've had on the show before, uh, Regana out of Oakland, California. They have come out with a new, I guess, EP, maybe single. Uh, called We Know That The Heavens Are Empty. Uh, It's two parts, uh, Waiting and The Tower. Um, I'm pretty sure they've used, like, tarot kind of imagery in their stuff before. I don't know, maybe. But, um, yeah, I absolutely love this band. Uh, They're on par with, like, Dao as, like, insanely intelligent, brilliant sludge doom. And just really incredible band. Um... They it well they did a split with Dow a little while ago. I think it was the last release apart from this one, yeah, two thousand eighteen. But a two thousand seventeen's album, You Take Nothing, was absolutely incredible. Really dig these guys. So we'll be uh, playing out with that. Only, we're only going to be playing half the song because it's like fourteen minutes long, and I don't want to play an entire album on the show. It seems kind of uh, it's kind of a dick move to to do that. So we'll play it with that and come back next week because we're doing. Jeff Vandermeer's new book, Dead Astronauts, uh, you know, he's kind of a big deal. I think you'll agree. Uh, we may have a special musical guest. Um, you can probably guess, like, out of all the bands in the world, who would we want to have on this year? You know? We're just trying to make that happen. I don't want to say who it is just yet, because what if it doesn't happen? But, you know, you, you know who, who we would want, you know? So, but, uh, yeah, here's Regana. <laughs> 